The Devil Within, the hit true crime podcast, is back with a terrifying journey into the mind of a madman. In the 1970s, New York City had it all. Hip-hop, punk rock, and the son of Sam. The Devil Within, a season in hell, is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. What you're about to hear is an interview with the Gits drummer, Steve Moriarty. In being in the Gits, Steve was also an extremely close personal friend to Mia Zapata. If you haven't listened to our episode on Mia Zapata, pause here, go listen to that episode, and then come back and enjoy the interview. We began speaking with Steve and building rapport kind of off record. And then once the conversation got more comfortable and we started learning really great things with Steve, we asked him for permission to go ahead and record our conversation, to which we are so lucky that he said yes. So when you hear the interview start, you're not going to hear the normal, hi, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. But you are going to immediately start hearing our conversation with him. And if Steve is listening today, thank you so much, Steve, for speaking with us. We feel so lucky that we got to learn so much from you. And now enjoy our conversation with Steve. Thank you so much for being willing to record with us because I'm loving everything that, that I'm hearing and the, the establishment of, of just the politics that were going on in the music scene, it sounds like. But, and you guys did play with Nirvana at like similar benefits and shows, right? Like yeah, we played with all those bands and uh, I liked them as people, but it was more like their, yeah. their fans and their, uh, their record labels that were exclusive have trying to be exclusive and they're yeah. trying to bring like the Los Angeles uh, music scene, um, competitive Holly West Hollywood kind of hipster scene to see yeah. so that's where the record companies were the big ones and the independent yeah. record labels were all over the place. They're in Portland and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, Eastern Washington and Bellingham, Washington and, and sure. Seattle and Vancouver and, and small like college towns, mostly the indie labels. And then, the sub pop was the big label there and they had, they, you know, they wanted to control everything and they wanted to control the shows. So they would put up more posters and they would like their bands and they would have make, try to make, they would hype everything a whole lot. So we learned a lot from them about how to like promote the band. And we knew that like we had to have consistency in our marketing and like 
the posters that came out needed to be cool and a record jet, all the art needed to be consistent and really strong. And you were learning about the business side of things from them. Yeah, we needed to, but we didn't want to learn about the business. We just wanted to, well, I guess we did. We just wanted, we didn't want to do business with anybody else. We just wanted mm. to, to do it ourselves. And so yeah. we had to know how to do it ourselves. Yep. And we that, 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 that. Business. yeah, there's money involved. Um, yeah. So we pooled our resources from gigs that we were able to get and a couple thousand dollars and we put out the record that featured all of our bands. So we would all have a vinyl release first come out. Um, so that was the Rat House compilation because we did all the meetings for it and all the organizing for it at the Rat House. And it was kind of our meeting place because we all lived there or some of us and we heard, we rehearsed in the basement of the house. And shared gear down there. So we all sort of... Um, so what other bands besides the Gits? Because you're saying that... Yeah. Um, Probably Seven-Year Bitch, right? Seven-Year okay. Bitch. I mean, we, they used all our gear. We taught them how to how to play their instruments at the Rat House in the basement. like, And then... Um, wow. That's so cool. Um, alcohol Funny Car, sometimes. Um, the DC Beggars, they practice there all the time. The Gits practice there. Big Round House, which which was my other band, and Matt and I both played in Big Round House and the Gits, so we were a rotating rhythm section. So having our stuff set up there, we all practiced there too. Cool. And that was the band that I moved out to Seattle with, along with the Gits. So it was like two bands really, Big Round House and the Gits, and we were kind of we were kind of like sibling bands, kind of like the MC5 mm-hmm. and and the Stooges in a way. Yeah. So when we moved out there, we we shared everything and we helped each other out and. Um, and we figured if we we don't have the resources these other bands have with record labels and tour to booking agents and mm-hmm. managers and all that stuff, then well, you know, there's strength in numbers, and we could do what they do between all five of us and share the resources as opposed to just like each one trying to out hustle the other. Smarter, yeah. not harder, right? That sounds yeah. very smart. Working yeah, together, a collective. But I'd seen the um, the Crass Collective in England because I was. I was, I did a year in England when I was in college and um, the Crass Collective, they, they had their band Crass, but they, they all lived in a compound together. That was like a no go zone for police, but it was several blocks and they had, you know, they defended against any kind of attempts to dislodge them from their squats where they lived. And they started a record company and put out Crass, but they also put out other bands, including Bjork's first record, Kukul. Mm-hmm. Okay, on, and they had Crass Records was the label, so we kind of fashioned it after them. Even though they were more hardcore anarchist political, like ideologues, we were more more laid back. Like ah, you know, we just do it our way. Fuck it, uh, you know, we're not going to be organized, but we were organized. And then I noticed that. Then I learned about the Discord when I was there. I learned about Fugazi and Minor Threat and how they had started the Discord House in DC and had a label and all lived there, and all the bands that were touring through would stay there. So I kind of wanted to model it on the discord house in dc and the crass house in england and that that was the the uh, roots of the rat house only lasted a few years but man well, so many bands stayed there yeah and party there with us i mean it was pretty remarkable where did everybody like sleep i know that you were pointing out in the documentary like the different rooms and stuff where you guys slept who were physically renting it but like when people were crashing there did they just sleep wherever or like how did that work well there was a couch it was really gross i slept there <laughs> It was disgusting. It was French fries. Ugh. One time I woke up and there was a French fry stuck on my cheek. <laughs> oh, my oh, gross. Um, <laughs> well, I had a garden there too. But then some band came through. I think it was 
sublime. And they stayed there and the dog attacked my garden because I had two tires around my tomato plants because it keeps the soil warm. Yeah. And the dog grabbed my uh, the tires and started pl- ripping it around like this this little dog like started whipping it was a giant tire around like it was nothing, like it was a pet toy, you know, like a stuffed animal. And oh, I took the tomatoes were flying everywhere. And I got so mad, I kicked them out and made them go leave. <laughs> was that Lou Dog? Yeah, I guess so. It's just incredible to hear, you know, the the connection, all these bands on the periphery of everything you guys had going on. It must have been incredible. You know, do you feel well, those like, bands weren't popular yet? I mean, they right? I booked them. It's the beginning. So yeah. twice and they came through on Tuesdays and I I couldn't make enough money to pay the sound guy. So I had to pay pay the sound guy out of my own pocket because no one came. But I liked them. I thought they were cool. I mean, you were on the ground floor of such a time in musical mm-hmm. history. Yeah. That that's incredible yeah. just to hear some of the stories you have. Yeah. 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 I don't yeah. I hope people find it in- interesting. And then I find it interesting. I love well, it. It seemed like everywhere we played, we would open or be playing on the same bills with bands that would become huge the next week. But it was also really frustrating. We thought we were better in a lot of ways. We had more experience. We played better. Our songs were more meaningful, we thought. Mia was a better performer. We all tried a lot harder. And she was really, Mia was really frustrated at the end too. She's like, people don't get like how much, how hard we work, you know, Mm -hmm. and those bands that put in zero time get picked up by these major record companies and overnight they're buying houses and we can't even afford to pay our $800 rent in our house. So it was Mm -hmm. was a struggle. It was really frustrating. And um, let's see who else opened for us. Everclear opened for us once. Then they got huge. Twice, actually, they played with us, opened for us. And then um, Beck was another one. He opened for us. Juliana Hadfield from The Throwing Muses. I think she was, we opened for her. Probably bands that are huge that I don't even know. I didn't even recall them playing, that we were right. playing with them in different places. The Catherine Wheel, have you heard of them? That was a band. Um, of course, Harvey Danger. They yep. became um, Death Cab for Cutie. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. And all those all those bands that came like in the early 2000s just looked up to us. They just thought we were, you know, we were the shit. And yeah. it was funny because yeah. we weren't playing anymore, right? So after 93, yeah, kind of people would talk about how what our band meant to them. And it was just kind of like, just kind of lost on it all because we were busy trying to find out who killed me. And so it was like, we never really got to feel like appreciated very much, I think, as the kids. That's frustrating yeah. because Still, Mia really yeah. was an artist. And, you know, when you look at her lyrics, like that's, there's, it's, they're very deep. And I think there's a part in the documentary and I forget who says it, but they say, you know, when you look at Mia's, you know, lyrics, I don't, I don't want to interpret that for you. You know, these lyrics can be for anybody to interpret for how it makes, you know, them feel they take away from it and the perspective that they receive from, from the artistry of her lyrics. Yeah. I mean, and then, I mean, her, the lyrics are, and it's universe, they're universal, right? It's like you can read them and and they could, anyone that reads them, I feel like can apply it to their lives. So it almost Mm -hmm. seems like their lives are inherent in the lyrics or that she's talking about their lives or my like my life i thought that about every song she wrote like oh gosh she wrote that about me about (laughs) me it was just about something i could relate to so much so well you know is there a song that was most impactful for you you know i don't know there was really uh i I remember performances that were very impactful i mean i can remember certain specific and others i can't remember at all and people say i was there and i can't remember but there was um like some of the shows that we did at antioch were just 
when I saw Mia really come out and and become a singer and become like yeah. a front person just blew blew my mind, you know, like I can't even tell you the story. It's just too it's too I think it was too personal to her. Uh, but there was one occasion that we had organized a, a show. We were, it was the last spring before we all left. And um, I, we organized a show and we got a pig and roasted this pig in a big pit, which was a huge controversy because it was like very vegetarian school. Kind of. and, yeah, uh, liberal arts college. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't eat any of it, but some people, yeah. some people did. And it never got done, which is really gross. It was like they didn't make the fire hot enough. But then we would have bands played, but just it was the idea of the name of it, Rock and Roast, that we thought was funny. So we did it. Yeah. And then, um, and we played a gig there and Mia was having a really hard time, really, really hard time. And but she did anyway. And she was on stage singing one of her songs where she just was like crying and like belting out the lyrics in this way that you just like it was wow. it was un it was unimaginable how she like what the emotion that was pouring out of her and um and she was barely able to stay up on the stage, but she did. And like, she just took every song and every audience really seriously and really literally, even if it was in like a cornfield in Ohio after her pig was being roasted, you know, it was still like she, I mean, it seemed like she looked every single person in the, in the audience in the eye and was singing to every single person, every, every time through every gig. From but that time was when I really understood what it meant to put emotion to put all your heart and soul into the now, the present, like the song and improvising it or playing it the way with the, with the passion that it, that the lyrics speak of and, mm-hmm. and, and listening to the other people in the band and just, and communing with them and making the song became way more than the sum of the parts. It was just like, Oh my God, it's this emotional waterfall yeah. that is tearing us apart. But at the same time as, as this cathartic experience that's going to move past whatever was bugging her or yeah. us and I was crying up there and we we're all crying and Andy's trying to keep Mia from collapsing on the stage and it was just like it wasn't drama it was just happening you know yeah. it was it was not a show in any way and I don't know what people noticed and what they didn't but it was I can't assume that they didn't notice something but we'd play gigs like that that organized we'd play for like 20 people sometimes or 100 we didn't care we would just play the same way Right. Not be like, oh, there's no, there's nobody here. Where are we gonna play? You know, we would just rage. And the fewer people, sometimes the, the harder we would play. Sometimes those are the best shows because they're mm-hmm. more intimate, and you feel like you can connect with everyone in the room. Yeah, yeah, she did. I don't, I, I didn't feel like I could, but she was able to. And I would just, I was the accompanist. You know, I just wanted to accompany her, and so I would play back, play less or uh, more straight or like during when she was singing and just try to get out of her way musically. And um, mm-hmm. that was my role. I felt. I feel like that says a lot about the symbiotic relationship you had with her as an artist and as a bandmate, you were able to like be so in tune with one another right. that she didn't have to tell you, Hey, play straight. Hey, uh, pull back on this. You just knew. I, I think that's amazing to hear. And that's what, you know, our relationship was, was such that we we knew each other and loved each other a lot and i think mia and i did and in essence we had a like a family sort of hot and cold sort of thing you know sometimes i'd be really mad at somebody in the band and they'd be mad at me i'm sure all the time but no one really talked about it very much um and then when we were on stage no matter what it was that just was gone and we had a job to do and it didn't matter if if somebody was you know putting bananas in my shoes at night or whatever (laughs) 
happened. <laughs> so, <laughs> it didn't matter. I mean, just pour it in and put bananas in their shoes the next night. So yeah, then you're even. <laughs> yeah. So if you're going to pass out, make sure you leave your boots on. You might get your face drawn on for that reason, but you won't get bananas in your shoes. <laughs> Can you remember that when you're on tour? Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, because you guys moved to Seattle in 1989 towards like the yeah. end, but you were created in September of 86. So there's this three years from when you guys first met at Antioch till you moved. Can you talk a little bit about like the formation of the band and kind of how you guys ended up meeting at Antioch? I know it's not the largest school, but just a little bit of like the foundation of where the gets kind of came from. Besides the it's man's in the documentary, song. isn't it? Mostly. I mean, Oh, that's some pretty it, it was it just kind of like an organic meeting. I just didn't know if there was some like, you know, where you guys met in a specific way or a specific class or something. Mm, I can't really. It's kind of private, I suppose. Sure. sure. That's absolutely um, how we met. I think. And actually, my book, it's a, kind of the, feet, the beginning part of my book. And I'd rather not. Totally. Cool. We'll read it. We'll read it in the book. <laughs> then you can add an addendum. <laughs> For our listeners, though, you are writing a book. We, about- yeah, I mean, Andy and Mia were second year students. They were sophomores when Matt and I entered. And Matt and Andy and I all lived on the same floor in a dorm building that was built in during the Civil War. This old brick building that had absolutely no rules. So I remember, you know, school started and then Halloween came, right? And in 89 and Halloween Apparently there's this big party that happened in our dorm. And I was like, oh, I hate parties. I don't want to have all these people. And um, <laughs> the dean of students is standing at the door, like checking people. Um, I'm like, and I was intimidated. And the, the guy at the door was issuing uh, a stamp on your hand. If you pay to get it, it was like $3 to drink all you want. And, um, and I hit an acid. So like everybody in the place was able to get a free hit of acid. And apparently that had been a tradition for 20 years. And the dean is sitting there watching it. He knew it. He didn't care. <laughs> so it was kind of like this this surreal place with no absolutely no rules as long as you were cool you didn't hurt anybody and you didn't use like racist or overtly sexist language and and action so it was kind of like anything goes that's that's any rule that's derived from a stupid law rule or more in the country was just like kind of thrown out and then the the, the laws or rules that mattered were sort of highlighted so like the sexism, racism, homophobia stuff was just like taboo. No way, don't f- with it. You you cannot. It's against the law here. Um, smoking, taking acid, you know, taking your doors off the dorm so everyone can f- each other. Like all that was okay. All that was fine. You know, I'm oh, yeah, sure so- some, some kids lost their mind and went away screaming. I remember. <laughs> sure. But like some people were just kind of like, wow, this is like a little utopia. Freedom from, you know, the confines of what might have been home before that or whatever. Freedom from, yeah, from every place. It was like a, it was a oasis. Yeah. Isolated in the middle of nowhere. And um, it was the only place in the country that had a black police chief. And um, I mean, it was pretty progressive. Um, Dave Chappelle is from that town. You know him? Yeah. His cousin is my my best friend, one of my best friends from there. And they, they all grew up in Yellow Springs. So you can imagine weird and funny and politically bizarre and funny yeah and controversial he is that's kind of like yeah the, the radical nature of the yellow springs that's, well that's the vibe we'll put dave Chappelle as a town or as a school <laughs> you could call him and interview him that would be cool huh yeah <laughs> yeah so he didn't go there but his brother was a friend of mine wow okay so i'm hearing that 
at least Dave Chappelle's brother knew Mia. No, they all knew Mia. Of course they did. Dave Chappelle did too. Wow. wow. His cousin was Mia's best friend, one of Mia's best friends. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I it met him and I didn't know who he was. Honestly, I didn't like, I didn't have a TV until, you know, the nineties, later nineties. And yeah. I didn't know what who he was. What a small world. I think um, one of the like, parts that kind of made me smile of the documentary was when I think it's either Ben or Mark or well, they're both kind of talking about a specific night at Antioch where Mia just jumps up on a table and she began singing like a a bluesy song that I wasn't super familiar with when they named it. Um, They called it like a Betty or Bessie blues or something like that. And did Mia do that kind of stuff a lot? Cause I I've heard from, you know, when her dad was mentioning and talking about her that like, sure, Mia, you know, could be reserved, but you put a mic in her hand and you get her up on stage and, and you can see it like she's a powerhouse on stage. Um, no, and- I don't think she, uh, she wouldn't, she wouldn't jump on the, she wouldn't just spontaneously break into song or anything. Not really yeah. she'd be shy, even if she'd yeah. get drunk, but she wouldn't like sing karaoke or be weird. Like she would just kind of keep to herself. I never, never heard her really just even sing outside of the band. Yeah. Just singing by herself, maybe when she was walking or something. But um, I think he was just sort of making, creating a metaphor for, you know, because uh, the guy that said that, um, Andy, Andrew um, Pollard, he did our record jacket paintings. Mm-hmm. And um, he's a real great painter and artist. And I think it was just sort of like, he's referring to her jumping up on stage and singing, you know? Like when he didn't expect her to be able to sing like that. And then, because yeah. we, we had a band for a while at the same time, a blues band with Mia and Matt and I, and another guy. That may have been what it was. It was just more metaphorically yeah. put then. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for explaining yeah. that. That makes it makes it make more consistent with like who it seemed like, like Mia was. So that's why I was like, I got to bring that up because I'm like, how in the world? Like, what a crazy moment, you know? But, and he did mention a blues song. So it's probably from that. I do remember her one time, like being drunk and then just like, there was this huge round table that about 10 people could fit around at the Comet Tavern. and, And her friend Stephanie was across the table and she like crawled across the table and knocked over all the glasses and pitchers everyone was drinking. Just like jumped up and started crawling to her and then tackled her friend on the other side of the <laughs> table, knocking down on the floor. And they're both screaming and like everyone's yelling at me for knocking over their beers. And it was just, there's <laughs> this giant puddle and these two women wrestling on the, fl- on the floor, the sticky, nasty barroom floor with all this beer everywhere. And yeah, and he was licking their cheek and her face. And it was like, <laughs> what are you doing? You're not a dog. God. <laughs> Something, something like that would happen. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But those are the times you don't forget. I mean, what a fun <laughs> crowd to be around. Yeah. I think Valerie mentioned a time getting licked on the cheek by Mia too. Oh, did she? Yeah, I think so. In the documentary, she mentioned something about that or in an interview I saw of Valerie. And then yeah. like, see, she had a silly side. And I just oh, think that's really, Yeah, it's just really funny. That's she didn't write funny stuff though. She didn't when I... Right. In her journal, she didn't write humorous stuff. She just was. It was just who she was. I mean, she found humor in things and she would sort of act it out. And mostly she would do impressions, like she would have accents that she would do that were just really funny. <laughs> I can only imagine. That's yeah, awesome. No, you can't. <laughs> it was like like she did it really badly, though, you see. She thought she was yeah. funny. She couldn't do it. So it was just ended up sounding re- weird, like not funny, kind of disturbing. Yeah. 
And then sometimes that's what makes it funny because it's so yeah. horrible. You're just like, no. Yeah, like, no, oh, gosh, no, 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 please stop. Well, thank you for everything you have shared thus far. Is there, is there anything else that you would like, you know, any of the listeners that were able to share this with um, the world um, to know about Mia, her artistry or or anything else? I do have a lot of things I would like people to know about the Gits and, and Mia and yeah. our relationship and how we felt, what we did in the world. and um, But I also hope that people would not would stop focusing on the fact that she was a murder victim and uh, a martyr or whatever she has become and focus on her art and her music and doing that, um, making it easier because we're reissuing all our records now in the next, in the coming years and um, either one at a time or all, and all in a box set, probably starting this year. And then I've written a book, which should with any luck be out this year, but maybe the next year. That um, anyone that has any questions about who she was and her family and who the gits were, um, it's focused on Mia and myself. It's and a band, but not necessarily the. It, it, I don't go into detail about other people's and the band's private lives, but right. um, it it focuses on her creativity and how she wrote songs and her process and her humor and her disappointments and her her attempts to help other people and attempts to help her and pretty much the story that the real story that uh, I feel like that gets represented as opposed to what happened to me. It gives more credence and, you know, and I, I, Mm -hmm. we did a lot of those shows, the um, unsolved mysteries and probably Mm -hmm. 10 of those shows when we didn't know who did it and we needed to find the person. And I think they worked to some extent by keeping it in the media so that the cops would actually run the, the DNA evidence when yeah. they used to in the past. And right. Jet, I mean, OJ would get off on buckets of blood, right? So no one expected that that we would pass, it would pass muster. No one expected that these this guy would get busted. And um and the case that was the smallest amount of of DNA evidence used in the state, maybe the country, to convict someone, the smallest amount. Yeah. And it was the first time that something called dentum had been used to extract DNA to convict someone. And dentum is the saliva that accumulates on your teeth. Mm-hmm. And it was taken from blood, from uh, bite marks on our breasts. So that was a, a landmark decision by the by the court. And hopefully it could land some other people in prison. And he died last January of COVID. So that's, I don't have to worry about that anymore. The guy that killed her. Yeah. Yeah, we, we we found that information, but they did not release that it was COVID. That it was COVID. They didn't. COVID. Um, the only article we found there hadn't been a, a statement of of what um, of what he passed from. But yeah, mm-hmm. nobody else will ever. I I even say in the episode after I mentioned that, like he will never hurt anybody else ever again. And yeah, people are still suffering though from it, and um, yeah. Uh, hopefully yeah. the music can make up for it. Yeah. You know, how That's people feel from the music and power was way more, was way stronger and more and longer lasting than, than his or probably many other singers even. Yeah. That's what I told our listeners. If you want to, you want to honor her, listen, listen to the music, mm-hmm. you know, listen, yeah. listen to her music, read her lyrics. I've kind of been reading some of the songs and just kind of like going through the lyrics. And sometimes I have to read them a couple times, you know, I got to get in that like deep, 
you know, state of mind. And and in the book, I um I explained the process of writing all the songs, what yeah. how they did it on stage, and then what her process was and what what they were about. So that's something else that that's. Oh, I can't wait. I can't yeah, wait. I can't wait to read it. Yeah. Yeah, I hope you do. I hope, I hope I can give it out. You let us know, and we'll we'll definitely let our audience know. You know when it's out as well. Okay, great. I will. Awesome. Well, thank you for all of your time, Steve. We know you're a busy guy, so thank you again. Yes, thank you. Thanks, Good luck. Steve. Yep. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries Pod on TikTok and Instagram, at the Murder Diaries Podcast.com, and the Murder Diaries Pod Request at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, go ahead and give us five stars. It helps us keep the good content flowing. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.